You're listening to Everyday Evidence, presented by the American Occupational Therapy Association, helping the occupational therapy practitioner apply evidence to practice. Here's your host, Matt Brandenburg. Okay, today we are joined by Dr. Mary Hildebrand and Dr. Amanda Mack. Mary is an associate professor and the founding director of the Tabor Connor Family Occupational Therapy Center for Learning, Participation, and Rehabilitation at the MGH Institute of Health Professions. Mandy is the current director and an assistant professor of occupational therapy and soon to be the director of post-professional education at Washington University in St. Louis. I'm excited to speak with you both about the systematic review on stroke for caregivers of people with stroke you've contributed to in conjunction with AOTA's EBP program. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having us, Matt. Yeah, happy to be here. It really is our pleasure. Um, Before we jump into specifics of the systematic review, could you share with us what motivates you to conduct and synthesize research and evidence related to people with stroke and their caregivers? I guess I'll go first. Um, This is Mary. So I was a caregiver for seven years of my husband who didn't have a stroke, but he had ALS. And I was so glad that I was an occupational therapist and I knew a lot, but it was still hard. And I think that of those people who have no medical background, they are really struggling to help their family member. Um, And um, I've written a couple of chapters for two editions of Glenn Gillen's stroke rehabilitation uh, text about caregivers of people who have had stroke. And I found out that about 74% of people who have had a stroke are cared for by family members or friends. So that's a lot of people. And my, I guess, passion for the topic um, isn't as personal as Mary's, but my clinical practice was in long-term acute care. And I felt as a clinician that I just wasn't preparing caregivers well that they were going home and having to figure things out on their own, that they, you know, the limited training and education I was providing them just didn't feel adequate. And so as I moved into doing some research, this topic really felt important to me. Absolutely. It's it's interesting that you both have different backgrounds in observing um, caregiver burden as a caregiver and as a practitioner. Um, I think it is something that um, a lot of OTs are aware of. Um, how would you describe the unique experience of caregivers for people with stroke? Well, I, you know, stroke is one of the, the most common conditions that may require caregiving, and it, it affects not only the person's physical capabilities, but they may have mental health impairments. There may be cognitive effects from the stroke, and I'm really interested in the topic of aphasia. That occurs in about a third or anywhere from 20 to 40% of people who have had a stroke. And that's a really particularly difficult condition to deal with when you're a caregiver. I think one other thing I'd add is that caregivers of people who have had a stroke are really concerned that their loved one not have another stroke. So that adds this layer of anxiety both for the person who's had a stroke and for their families. 
there are so many changes that happen in the life of, of someone who has experienced a stroke and for their caregiver. Um, so thank you for highlighting some of those um, experiences that people uh, might, might be going through. Why would you say it's important for practitioners working with this population to consult and use systematic reviews to guide their clinical reasoning and their intervention planning? I think that it's important for all practitioners to be, you know, consulting and using systematic reviews as much as they can. Systematic reviews really give practitioners an overview of the literature. Mary and I spent many, many hours looking through it and analyzing and um, really finding what does it say as a whole. And that really is important, an important summary for practitioners to be able to know. And we know that using evidence to guide um, our interventions and to guide our clinical reasoning, it makes it more effective. It makes it worth our time in or- when we're doing these interventions. And of course, it's important as we work towards getting reimbursed as well to show that what we're doing actually works. I completely agree. I think the key word there that Mandy said is that summary. It summarizes. We We did this broad look and it, and we kind of synthesized it down and summarized uh, what has been shown to work. And I think that it's also, at least my experience in working with clinicians and practitioners and as an educator, that most people aren't using any evidence at this point for how they're educating caregivers and really thinking about the best way to do that. So having any type of evidence, but especially this high quality evidence to guide those efforts is a really important step towards being an evidence-based practitioner. That's a a really interesting point. I think sometimes it can feel natural when you're kind of on the spot. A caregiver might ask uh, a practitioner for recommendations or what to do um, and to just say the first thing that comes to mind um, and give some recommendations that a typical OT practitioner would do in, if they were being a caregiver. Being able to have a high level of evidence, like you mentioned, to, to draw from and, and really make sure we're giving evidence-backed um, recommendations uh, is so impactful. And I'm always extremely grateful for people who um, contribute and, and do these systematic reviews uh, because it makes that process so much easier for the practitioner um, instead of having to dive through and sort through so much uh, literature it's all right there in the systematic review. Yeah. I mean, we know practitioners have about zero extra minutes every day to be sorting through articles, right? So having something like a systematic review to quickly look at, there's even, you know, shorter versions, systematic review briefs to really give you the information really quickly. It's a really valuable tool. What was the focused question that you used for this systematic review? Here it is. What is the evidence for the effectiveness of interventions within the scope of occupational therapy practice for caregivers of people with stroke to facilitate maintaining their participation in the caregiver role? Quite a mouthful. That is that is quite a mouthful. Um, <laughs> what, what can you tell us about, about that question? Why, why did you choose to encompass those specific factors into the review? One of the things I love about this question, despite it being really long and complicated, is that it focuses on participation, which, you know, is the hallmark of OT. So it's talking about what can we do to help the caregiver participate in a role, really not focusing on injuries or um, looking at outcomes of the 
person they're caring for, but really focusing on the caregiver themselves and their participation. Yeah, I I love that, Mandy. Um, also, I think it's important to note that it says within the scope of occupational therapy practice. So some of these randomized control trials that we looked at were not carried out by occupational therapists, but we could have. Uh, we could have delivered these interventions. So we had to make sure that the intervention that we looked at in these research articles was within our scope of practice. That's a good point, Mary, because there's actually very little literature about OTs carrying out these interventions, like you mentioned. So expanding it within our scope was an important part of this question. And that's an interesting point. I'll be interested uh, later on in this interview to hear what OTs can do in general to, to contribute to more research uh, being done in relation to this topic. But as far as, as your steps after developing this question, how much research, how many articles were you able to find in the current literature related to it? We had a lot. So, you know, the AOTA team has a medical librarian and a methodologist, and they looked through all these databases for, you know, with these key terms around caregiving and stroke, et cetera. And they identified about 4,000 articles. Well, we didn't, no worries, we didn't have to go through those. And then finally, they sent us, I think, around 550 abstracts. So Mandy and I and, and some graduate students that we had screened those abstracts and excluded those that didn't meet the criteria of being like within our scope of practice for adults who have had a stroke, et cetera. And then we screened full texts of articles and we finally came down to 33 articles that fully met our inclusion criteria. Wonderful, wonderful. I love uh, hearing descriptions of, of this process. Um, I know with, from a practitioner's perspective, it's intimidating enough to try and conduct your own research to, to help guide intervention planning. But then hearing how there's 5,000 articles um, related to the topic, and it's just very gratifying to know that people go through that process to narrow it down to 33 focused articles with, with good high levels of evidence to, to help practitioners. I think we were lucky, weren't we, Mandy, that uh, for this particular topic in stroke, that we had more articles than many, many of the AOTA EVP folks do. And we were able to just exclude anything that wasn't a really high level of uh, of research. Right, Mandy? Yeah. And it just, you know, can improve our confidence in our outcomes when we're using mm -hmm. those really high levels of evidence. Yeah. Absolutely. And what what did these 33 papers that, that we came to, what, what were some of the most common OT interventions for caregivers of, of people with stroke that were found in this review? Uh, when you ask about what are the most common OT interventions for caregivers, well, what we found might not have been the most common, okay? We found this article, you know, for our background, for our, uh, for our lit review, we found this article, or there, there was a survey of OTs, PTs, and SLPs, and what they did with caregivers of people with stroke. And they, everybody provided education and training to the caregivers, but very few of them provided support, stress management, you know, referrals to support groups, even things like financial management, uh, which is so important for people, uh, caregivers. You know, everybody did the education and training in an inpatient setting. 
and they and there was an estimate of about that in total they provided 45 to 60 minutes of intervention with the stroke caregiver. So education and training, yes, but just a few minutes. Uh, so that's kind of what's the most common out there. And then what we found was was different about what worked. I think when you reflect on what's most common, this education and training, maybe up to an hour, you can just think as a practitioner how many things you can't get to in that amount of time and how limited that is. And I think our results really show the gaps in practice when we really look at what is best practice versus what's happening most often. Absolutely. And you, you've mentioned already in the, the formulation of this question how important caregiver participation and well-being are. Those are two areas of, of occupational performance that are, are tough to address with, with education. Is there anything else you'd like to say to, to what makes addressing caregiver participation and well-being so important and, and necessary for practitioners to do? Yeah, I, I am particularly passionate about why we need to do this. I mean, uh, the practice framework, of course, talks about the caregiver being our client as well. But in the literature, you find that there are positive effects of caregiving on the caregiver. But the literature primarily finds that there are a lot of negative effects on the caregiver, like physical, like injuries and the physical effects of stress and the lack of sleep and the lack of socialization. And then, of course, there are the mental health problems associated with caregiving, like depression and anxiety. And, uh, you know, the literature talks about caregiver burden or caregiver strain. And, and that's a very subjective component for every caregiver. And then you find that there are so many financial problems. You know, you can't work. So there's the cost of being unable to work or missing out on promotions, the cost of uh, hiring an aide the cost of equipment, et cetera. There are just so many things that we might be able to address to help the caregiver. And also research shows that the better off the caregiver is, the better off the person who's had a stroke is. Their quality of life is better. They're, they're, they have fewer hospitalizations. They're less likely to be placed in a long-term care facility. So there are a lot of really important reasons to address caregiver participation and well-being. And my interest is largely in health promotion and wellness. Being a caregiver puts, you know, those persons at such high risk for, you know, negative outcomes like uh, Mary was talking about, but also their own medical issues. So um, cardiac issues, you know, having their own stroke, ignoring their own underlying conditions and their own health and well-being. And then you can end up with two people who've had strokes or a person who's had a stroke in another condition, and it just can kind of snowball. So my interest is also in how do we keep these people well? How can we establish habits and routines and give them resources to be able to take care of themselves while they're helping take care of someone else? That really is a, a million-dollar question, and I want to ask, what did the systematic review find or, or suggest that our interventions for caregivers, which are supported by evidence, that, that practitioners could use? Well, we, we found, Mandy and I came up with five different themes of types of interventions, and um, they were cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, then caregiver education only, caregiver support only, 
and then a combination of caregiver education and support, and then multimodal intervention. So everything but the kitchen sink is thrown in on those multimodal interventions. For example, um, cognitive behavioral therapy techniques, we found that the studies that are the research interventions that showed some of the strongest evidence is using problem-solving therapy along with education. So problem-solving is a, a cognitive behavioral therapy technique or method whereby you um, teach the caregiver how to manage their stress. You teach them how to identify problems, how to generate solutions, and then implement those so- solutions. And it's, it's like a coping strategy. And it helps them to build their self-efficacy. I almost think of problem solving is very very similar to co-op. And I know uh, the cognitive orientation to daily occupational performance. I I think co-op is kind of a problem solving technique. So we found that that was was supported by really strong evidence. We also found a smattering of other things that were um, shown to have strong evidence. So One of the main things was that education and training was delivered after discharge from acute care. Um, So any education and training that was delivered just in the acute care setting didn't have a lot of evidence to support it. So giving um, training and education over time or after discharge was actually um, found to be a better intervention. We also found that education and support alone are, may not be sufficient that using multiple, this multimodal approach, right? Using multiple ways of delivering information, training, education, support was more effective than just going at it from one way. Um, and we know that as OTs, that people learn differently and um, at different times in different places. And we also found that delivering interventions at home was really effective. So versus delivering in a clinic or delivering an inpatient, delivering those interventions in the home was much more meaningful. And I think it aligns nicely with some of those problem-solving techniques that we've been talking about. I think the final thing that this found that was really key was that it needed to be individualized as well. So curriculum that was delivered just to a group that wasn't tailored to those people wasn't really effective from this you know this systematic review that it really needed to be individualized to each caregiver and what they were going through and experiencing absolutely thank you for summarizing these five themes um i i do have some some follow up questions i'm a, a pediatric practitioner so don't have much experience in working with adults or um who have experienced stroke or caregivers um of of people who have had stroke what are kind of some uh, main tenets of of the education and support themes that you discovered what should practitioners be including in their education and what does the the support theme and, and intervention really look like such a great question matt and I don't know that I have the answer from this systematic review. So one of the challenges that we faced with this was that most of the interventions did multiple things and they all did them differently. And so it was really difficult to boil it down to what's actually causing the change, right? What's actually making a difference? So those essential ingredients were really hard to pinpoint. Um, What we know is more about 
rather than what content is in it, we know that one-on-one training is better than group. We found that delivering education over time was more effective than, you know, a condensed version. So we're talking weeks and months, not days. Uh, We learned that in-person isn't always the best, that sometimes um, especially support and follow-up trainings for things can be delivered mostly via phone, but I'm sure via video call, all those types of things, and that that can be really effective as well. So I don't know that I have a best practice for what is delivered, but I think that individualized piece in using our occupational therapy you know, lens to think about what those clinicians might benefit from is a good place to start. There's so many things that you have to address, and it really depends on the person who's had the stroke, what their needs are, and the person who is doing the caregiving. You might be doing feeding training. You might be doing transfer training. How do you um, speak with a person with aphasia? Yeah, there are just so many different things that you're going to be doing you know, you're educating the, the caregiver on, and it's really individual. Uh, so that's why it's so important to do that problem-solving training because problems are going to change over time, and you've got to give them the tools to examine the problems, come up with different strategies and try those out, see what works, and give them the confidence or the self-efficacy that they can address those problems because they can be they, wide-ranging with a stroke. Yeah, it makes me think about the whole teach a man to fish type of thing, right? And how we can never address everything that's going to come up and every person is different. So rather than trying to find the secret sauce of what we should be teaching, right? It's okay. We need to think about how to equip them to manage these things. Right. I love that. I love that metaphor. Sounds like uh, training caregivers to become OTs in in a way and and really gain these these skills and and tenants um of client centered practice and it sounds like a one on one format with a kind of more of a, a distributed practice uh, as opposed to trying to cram before an exam if I'm relating this to to our experience in OT school really leads to to better outcomes for caregivers exactly we'll get back to our interview right after this quick word. We try to make research more applicable and more consumable for our listeners, and completing the survey that we mention on each episode helps us to do just that. AOTA members are now eligible to receive one contact hour for listening to an episode of our show and completing the survey. The survey is still only three questions long and can be found by following the link in this episode's description. Get yourself a contact hour and help us to improve the show improve the resources AOTA provides to its clinicians, and improve the application of evidence to practice in our field. Now back to the interview. Awesome. Was there anything else you wanted to touch on for common delivery formats um, or, or lengths of time that are most effective in assisting caregivers to, to maintain participation? The research used everything. They used in-person. They used one-on-one. They used groups. They used pre-discharge, post-discharge. They did things by telephone, by video call. They did at-home visits. Um, there was like one session versus many sessions over months. It was there was it was uh, there was a lot. There were a lot of different interventions, a lot of different settings, methods of delivery. We just found the gamut of things 
Yeah, there definitely wasn't a consistent length of time of the intervention or even the mode of delivery, right? The in-person, if it was telephone calls or anything like that. I do think it is important to note that in-person isn't always the best. Um, and especially in the world we're living in of telehealth, considering um, alternative ways to do training is important. You know, uh, in-person is, is great. It's lovely. But sometimes when you're caregiving, you can't get in. Um, you, you may have to hire someone to stay with a person who's had a stroke or you have to, may have to bring them with you. Or it's sometimes it's just really difficult to make that trip in. So sometimes, you know, that telephone call or video call or telehealth is actually better. I mean, it makes sense when you think about it, right, Mary, that, you know, for those reasons you just said, that those remote options are good options for caregivers sometimes, but also then the in-home visits are good options, right? Because it helps eliminate some of those barriers for caregivers that we wouldn't necessarily think about. Right. Absolutely. It's all going to depend on, on the individual and really trying to provide that, that personalized uh, care and support. Are there any interventions that you would say practitioners might want to avoid or only use with caution uh, when working with this population? I think the biggest things to avoid are trainings that are not individualized and that happen prior to discharge in a very short amount of time. (laughs) So basically the opposite of everything that we just talked about, you know, giving too much information at once that may not be relevant, not equipping them to problem solve on their own. I I think actually it's probably a lot of how we do our training now, right? Um, But important to think about that the evidence really doesn't back those approaches. Absolutely. Thank you. Before I move on to some application questions, I wanted to ask if uh, either of you had additional resources you would recommend to listeners who maybe want to learn more about problem solving therapy or, or any of those five themes. When we get our training in occupational therapy, we uh, are one of the few rehab disciplines who um, have mental health courses. I would refer us back to our mental health course, you know, to look at cognitive behavioral therapy, particularly problem-solving techniques. That's that's the main resource that I can think of. I think that for practitioners who really are delivering education and training and support to caregivers. I don't know that I have a specific resource, but really encouraging practitioners to think about learning about problem-solving therapy or CBT as some of their continuing education um, and really pursuing that um, because the caregiver is also our client, not just the person with the stroke. Um, So really thinking about expanding our skills and purposefully doing that rather than relying on what we've learned in school however many years ago or what our colleagues are doing, but really thinking about how can I advance my own practice in these areas that we know work. Absolutely. I love that. Thank you for those um, recommendations. How would you recommend a practitioner determine which evidence-supported intervention is or are appropriate to use with their clients and caregivers? I think something we haven't mentioned yet is doing a thorough assessment of the caregiver to determine their needs. Uh, There are many, many assessments for caregivers. A website, I think it's called Family Caregiver Alliance, has uh, lists of caregiver assessments. 
yeah, the, the Family Caregiver Alliance has a, a very comprehensive list of assessments for caregivers from, you know, their physical capabilities to their knowledge about how to provide care to the potential resources that they might be might use. There are, uh, there are lots of uh, caregiving assessments out there. And I think also for practitioners who are worried about reimbursement or limited time, you can also just start small and incorporate a brief occupational profile of the caregiver even. I'm a little bit embarrassed to say that I think the furthest I used to get into these conversations was, you know, are you able to help? Tell me about your home, right? Do you work? Right. Very, very basic questions without really getting into, okay, what are we really dealing with here? Right. Like, how can we best support you? Um, So, just taking the time to, again, frame the caregiver as a client. We often think about, you know, the caregiver as a team member, which is true, but really thinking about these people can also benefit from OT intervention and thinking about how can I expand um, what my definition of the client here. Is. Absolutely. And that's a great point, Mandy. I think uh, that's a, a common feeling for a lot of practitioners um, is that there are these other pressures of, you know, productivity and, and you know, still having a personal life and getting things done that uh, sometimes it can be tough to, to view a caregiver um, with the same amount of, of care and detail as, you know, a client on, on a caseload. How how would you recommend a practitioner really design and implement a client-centered and a, an effective intervention for um, a caregiver after this uh, this step of of using an occupational profile and and using a, a an assessment like you recommended, Mary? That's that's the first step is doing that thorough assessment so that we can plan an intervention. So and after we do an assessment, we have the information. I think. It requires a shift in mind and probably a shift in practice, you know, and this is, I'm sure, particularly hard in COVID, but thinking about how can we have the caregiver there more than just that 60 minutes that we're doing transfer training, you know, how can we have them there helping practice problem solving throughout, you know, rehabilitation or the inpatient stay, or if we're doing home therapy, how can we, can we ask that the caregiver is there and involved that We're not as hands-on as OTs, that we are a coach in that place, right? And you're still working on bathing and dressing and, you know, building endurance and cooking meals, all these things. But how can we empower the caregiver in, in our sessions to practice problem solving, right? How can we help them drive the sessions and learn alongside the patient, right? How can we really take a more team approach to this. I think too often we think we need to train the person and then the caregiver is an afterthought, right? But really involving them every step of the way. And that can also really help with reimbursement um, challenges. When you're working on showering and ADLs, right, you are going to get reimbursed whether the caregiver is there or not. So might as well bring the caregiver along. Right. And and you're assessing the caregiver and they're abilities and and their capabilities in addition to doing that problem-solving training. Yeah, that's right, Mandy. I love that. Those are, are wonderful recommendations, and it really sounds like this shift in, in perspective and approach um, is what leads to, to the best outcomes um, for the person who experiences stroke and for the caregiver 
Could you share a case study or a personal experience that you've had when you saw or implemented a caregiver intervention that led to a positive outcome? Mary and I had a hard time with this question because I don't think either one of us have a super great success story. And I think that's partly why this research is so important because what we see in day-to-day practice is just not supported by evidence. Um, So I think I have lots of stories where I could have done better, but I don't know that I've seen a great outcome. Mary and I have spent a lot of time talking about what would it look like and running it by each other. And I've been talking to my friends and other clinicians about what would be feasible for actually implementing this caregiver training. And I think the things to think about are you can't do it on your own, that you need to really think about how to train caregivers well over different settings. It's everyone's responsibility. It's the acute care therapist and the rehab therapist and the home care therapist and the outpatient therapist. Everyone should be involving the caregiver and really thinking about best practice. And then also thinking about how we can involve other professions um, to do some of this work. So problem-solving therapy, CBT, isn't just OT. Um, It aligns well with OT, but nurses, um, mental health professionals, and social workers, other people can also be involved and support these things across the continuum. I agree. This was tough. I think that when I was a practitioner, I was doing what was commonly done which is not best practice. So I'm, I didn't have a case study or personal experience to share, you know, and that's one of the reasons we do these uh, systematic reviews. We, we really are wanting to find out what is best practice. Thank you so much for describing that. I really think the first step in promoting or, or implementing evidence-based practice into, into what we do as, as practitioners is realizing that what is most common might not be supported by evidence. Um, We've discussed this, how a lot of practitioners might feel like they're checking off that box of caregiver education just by, you know, maybe leaving a pamphlet or giving a a 30-minute instruction while still in in acute care. Those uh, points that you highlighted, Mandy, I think can be be very beneficial um, and encourage practitioners and our listeners to attempt to advocate for for more changes in their practice settings if need be to try and establish you know a a follow-up system or what recommendations would you have to practitioners who maybe want to make a change but aren't quite sure how to advocate and and what to ask for um of maybe their their supervisors or other people within the organization i think the the number one recommendation i have um is the thorough assessment of the caregiver to determine what their needs are. And and I think Mandy described it well in that, you know, you have that caregiver in every uh, session that you can. Um, and you're doing an assessment of the caregiver as well as the intervention with the, the client who's had a stroke. My second recommendation would be to really learn more about problem-solving techniques. Yeah, and I think just like every caregiver and every person with a stroke is different and individual, you know, each person's practice setting is going to be very different and there's going to be different barriers. Um, But I think about getting some of these things into habit. The easy ways to start are expanding the occupational profile. 
um, perhaps getting your hands on an assessment that you like of the caregiver, right? And starting to use it, um, you know, thinking about how can you have your schedule done in a way that the caregivers are present as much as possible or feasible, thinking about how do you hand off and discharge? Is there a summary about a caregiver that you can add on, you know, in communication? Can you perhaps involve doctoral students to, you know, do some caregiver training while you're hands-on with a client or can they help follow-up phone calls? I don't know. I love to think creatively, but it does take effort to think about what does this look like in my setting? And of course, like inpatient is going to look very different from something like home care, but being willing to challenge what we've done, um, change the status quo in order to provide the best care for our patients and their families and their caregivers is important. Absolutely. Those are wonderful recommendations um, and encouraging recommendations. Thank you so much for uh, sharing those with, uh, with our listeners. I only have two more questions uh, for you both now. Uh, the first being, where can listeners find more information related to the Stroke Systematic Review um, and its clinical applications? Well, AJOT has published... I think AJOT has published one of the questions for the stroke systematic review that we have completed, like the end of 2021. And Mandy and I uh, have, an, have this review, and that will be published. The January, February issue of AJOT, so the 2023 January, February issue. Right. And then, but then uh, there are, you know, our, there are four systematic review briefs. Yes. So those are already published in AJOT. Perfect. Perfect. I'll uh, link um, those articles in our episode description, as well as that Family Caregiver Alliance um, website that you mentioned earlier. Was there any other resources you'd recommend to, to our listeners? Well, I'm just thinking AARP has great caregiving resources. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. We're now arriving at our Golden Nugget segment. Personally, my favorite question of the show, if you could share one piece of advice or give one clinical recommendation to our listeners, what would you say? Do we each get one? Yes, yes. You can each have as many golden nuggets as you would like. My one piece of advice, if I were to try to step back and summarize everything, is to view the caregiver as your client to use that OT process and our OT clinical reasoning and our clinical lenses to think about how to best treat the caregiver. And that's going to lead most practitioners to some really solid interventions. I, and I would say, you know, really start looking at resources and literature about problem-solving therapy, problem-solving techniques. Because, you know, we can't go home and be with our, the caregivers 24-7. They've got to learn, you know, some of these strategies to solve problems. And that's, that's really going to be helpful to them. Start learning how to deliver problem-solving techniques. I love that. Those are wonderful golden nuggets to change our perspective, add to our OT toolbox, and really practice at the top of our license. Um, thank you both so much for your time and for being on the show today. Um, it's really been awesome. Thanks so much for having us, Matt. Thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening to Everyday Evidence. Tune in next time for more evidence-based practice insights and applications.